Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where this week we're going to examine some things in and out of the National Football League. I sort of got this idea when I was reading a book recently. It's called The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. It's by Joe Posnanski, who's a great American sports writer. I'm sure most of you who listen to this will know Joe or know of his great work. Uh, He was the 2012 Sports Writer of the Year in the United States. But we had a long conversation about this book because I am totally smitten, totally fascinated with Harry Houdini and have been for much of my life. Uh, And you'll hear that conversation with Joe in a bit. But also, I have shorter conversations early on, just a a few minutes with John Harbaugh, the coach of the Baltimore Ravens. I got him right after the Ravens' 37-20 victory over the Patriots Sunday uh, in the bowels of M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. And also, a player who this week in my column, I, I believe, will be one of the most important players in the second half of this NFL season non-quarterback division, Aaron Jones, running back of the Green Bay Packers. I talked to Jones last Thursday, which obviously does not include the major egg that the Packers laid uh, at the Los Angeles Chargers on Sunday. But I'm just fascinated by the story of Aaron Jones, and we will get to that how he grew up, how he was without his parents for a while. You will hear that story. So, three guests this week. Baltimore coach John Harbaugh, Green Bay running back Aaron Jones, and uh, Joe Posnanski, the writer of the Harry Houdini book. First, a few words about the team I saw on Sunday night, the winning team, the Baltimore Ravens, uh, and why, when I look at the modern NFL why I have so much admiration for the Ravens. You know, a lot of teams in the NFL uh, will take, let's say, the New York Giants, I mean, quite a few teams. They might go through a dry spell. They might win for a while, be contenders for a while, show up to training camp every year and think, hey, we got a good shot to be playing football in January. But, uh, and, and I'll use the Giants specifically, I guess, I mean, the Giants stuck too long with Eli Manning, and they are paying for it now in the effort to try to continually build and, and uh, uh, add players around Eli Manning so that he could contend maybe. They bought some free agents that now look like poor investments. Uh, Nate Solder, the left tackle right now. They were desperate to get a left tackle. They made him the highest-paid left tackle in football, and if you watched the Monday night game this week, the whole line of the New York Giants in the game against Dallas uh, is just a sieve uh, and cannot protect, cannot block for um, uh, the running back uh, that they paid so handsomely for in the 2018 draft, Saquon Barkley. But that's another matter. What, What I mean to talk about is what the Baltimore Ravens have done. They didn't wait too long. They didn't wait years uh, in, in watching a mediocre uh, Joe Flacco who wasn't getting the job done at quarterback. Uh, they waited a couple of years when they were dissatisfied with the production at that position, 
And what they did is they went out and they drafted Lamar Jackson 32nd overall in 2018. There were five quarterbacks picked, uh, you know, in that round. And, and clearly now, at the time, it was Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold. Uh, everybody loved those guys, or most people loved those guys. Uh, and there was this coldness uh, around uh, the candidacy and the draft odds of, of Lamar Jackson. And now uh, you see him after 31 teams passed on him. You see what he's doing. Uh, he didn't put up gaudy numbers Sunday night, uh, but he uh, obviously played very, very well uh, for the Baltimore Ravens. But this is something larger than that. The Baltimore Ravens, the reason I admire them is that the Ravens are a continuum. It's very hard in the NFL these days to make sure that you continue to supplement your team and you continue to be good. And, you know, to me, I think it is so interesting the way they have built their team. And I talked about this on my earlier podcast on Monday this week, uh, my FMIA mini pod. But when I look at the way that they have used the draft, first of all, more compensatory picks than any team in football in the last 10 years and more draft picks than any team in football in the top six rounds than any team in football in the last 10 years as well. That enables a team to stay on top when you have all of those draft picks, especially in the higher rounds. Um, And they always keep their eye on the prize. They do not worry when a key player like C.J. Mosley leaves uh, because obviously, uh, you know, if they lose uh, a great player in free agency, they know what's going to happen. They're going to get criticized publicly. They're going to get criticized in the press. They always have under Ozzie Newsom and now the first-year GM, Eric DaCosta. But they don't really care because they understand that, first of all, we're not paying um, a guy uh, who we believe is a good uh, player but not an irreplaceable player. We're not going to pay him so much that we're going to ruin the rest of our team. And so I think that has been sort of the hallmark um, of what they have done over time and why I respect them. They don't get married to any single player. They get married to the team, the team, the team. It's so ironic that the head coach of this team, John Harbaugh, his brother, uh, obviously Jim Harbaugh, the coach at the University of Michigan, uh, one of the most influential people in his life was Bo Schembechler, uh, the coach of uh, the Michigan Wolverines, uh, who coached uh, Jim Harbaugh uh, as a college football player. And that is the famous slogan that Bo Schembechler lived by, the team, the team, the team. And I think everybody in Baltimore lives by that, And I think it's something that for years, now that they seemingly have their long-term quarterback in Lamar Jackson, that we're going to see. The last thing I'll I'll tell you that I thought it was really interesting in in the locker room with Lamar Jackson. I spent a little time, I I sort of staked him out after the game 
because after his press conference where, you know, there's a bunch of people there because I was hoping to get a few words with him individually. So, so later, uh, me and a couple of other writers were standing there just waiting for him and talking informally to him. And you could just tell how excited he was and how happy he was and how much he was just into the moment. Um, this wasn't about how great it was. Oh, my God, I beat Tom Brady tonight. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was we won a game tonight. And, hey, I'm happy because we won. You know, there's nothing about me, me, me. And I just walked away from there. I walked out of the locker room that night, and I said, man, with this quarterback and with this ethos they have on their team, I think they're going to be good for a long, long time. Anyway, let's get into my first guest, um, which is the coach of the Baltimore Ravens, John Harbaugh. And we're going to pick up the conversation. It's only a few minutes. We're picking up the conversation when I talked to him about, hey, how fun it was to watch Lamar Jackson go out there and really control the game. I mean, we, we had to play Ben Roethlisberger all those years, and that was the thing that drove you crazy with him. He'd move around and make plays, and he'd throw it. Lamar will do that too, but the fact that he can do it with his legs too is just as, it's, a, it's a great weapon, you know, and um, he's just out there playing ball. And I'm glad everybody got a chance to see it. John, did you ever think you would have an offense that does so many different things Tonight, you used some <laughs> RPO stuff. Right. You almost, a couple of times, you know, you did wishbone offense right. where, you know, right. he pitches it out. Right. But, I mean, this is such a diverse, different, difficult to prepare for offense. Well, when we got Lamar, I thought we would. And, you know, I didn't know exactly how it would go. I think G. Rowe, Greg Roman deserves, and all the offensive coaches deserve tons of credit because it's one thing to, you know, to talk about or think about or have a vision for how it's going to, what the elements are going to be, and what you want to be able to put together. It's a whole other thing to put it together, you know, and that's, that's, what, that's what they do. You know, that's, they're the ones who have to organize that and get it all taught, uh, get it wrapped, and all those kind of things. And, you know, we're only halfway through the season, so there's a lot of story yet to be written one way or the other. But, you know, Greg Roman and that offensive staff deserves a lot of credit for that. John, what do you think you said to the NFL tonight, if <laughs> anything, about because it's looked like the Patriots have been so good in the first half of the season, and obviously, even losing this game, they're still an excellent team. So, what do you think you guys said to the rest of this league tonight? It really wasn't. I mean, that's to me. We, we're six and two. All right, we have we have a lead in the uh, in the AFC North, and we got we got we got to hold on to it. We got to extend it if we can. You know, we have eight games still to play. I mean, that's what's going to tell the story. So, whatever. Whatever statements or anything that, are going, or that need to be made will be made for the second half of the season. And I think that's the thing that we have to just keep in mind. Let's just look forward. Let's get to Cincinnati and uh, try to be the best team we can be next week, really. And if we keep it that simple, that's what we need to do. Last thing, you've had a great rivalry with the Patriots over the years. Yeah. You've only played them here twice before tonight yeah. since you've been here. It's really, really been imbalanced. Yeah. But what was it like to get – this great team, this great franchise in your house tonight and to play them uh, on an even footing and, and obviously to beat them? 
It's great for our fans. I mean, the thing that I was really happy for, because, you know, the way they've earned those other playoff games. I mean, they, they earned those home field advantages. So, And the other ones are just rotational. So, you know, I guess it's probably should be somewhat even, you know, yeah. for the regular season. If it's not. should be. It isn't, we, we need to talk to somebody about that. I don't know why that would be the case. What? What's going on with that? But um, I'm just happy for our fans because we don't get a lot of primetime games here for whatever reason, you know, like Pittsburgh, we always play them there in primetime, it seems like. And I'm just happy for our fans to be able to experience this stadium, like I said in the deal, in the press conference. At night, it's really electric. It's really a great venue, and our fans are great. So that's what you're happy for, you know. Last thing I'd ask you, you're midway through the third quarter. You get a third down. And the crowd is really, it's almost like a chapel. You know, everybody's quiet. Everybody's saying, oh, my God, 24 to 20. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of worry in the stadium. And then Lamar Jackson makes that pass to Mark Andrews. What are you thinking leading <laughs> into that play? I'm thinking we need a play. You know, I'm, I'm hoping we make a play, uh, just like the fans are. I'm probably feeling the same way they are. But we got, I mean, Lamar and, and Mark Andrews, you know, that's not the first time. That that's happened for us this year, so we're not. I wasn't shocked, you know, by any stretch. I mean, we've made a number of those plays already this year, so and we've got a lot of good young players that you know aren't, aren't afraid of the big moment up till this time. So let's keep building on that. John Harbaugh, congratulations. Thanks, Peter. My thanks to John Harbaugh. So this week across the NBC Sports Podcast platform. You're going to want to hear Chris Sims Unbuttoned, you know, every Wednesday. What I love about the Sims podcast is that he puts it in absolutely plain English. He doesn't fool around. He doesn't even put it in football ease. He just tells you exactly why teams won and lost. And, you know, I, I can't say the word right here on this, on this podcast, but he basically has a What the Bleep Happened podcast on Monday. He's going to go inside the Raiders' goal line stand that held off the Lions and won the game for Oakland. How Andy Reid beat Mike Zimmer and how the Chargers totally befuddled Aaron Rodgers. That podcast comes out today, Wednesday. His Monday podcast also broke down how Lamar Jackson got the best of Bill Belichick. You'll also want to check out, if you're a fantasy player, the Roto World Football Podcast. They got four episodes every week, hosted by NBC's Josh Norris, one of the best in the fantasy game. Now, it's getting to be crunch time in fantasy. Let Josh Norris help set your lineup. And now let's go to my conversation with Aaron Jones, the new star running back of the Green Bay Packers. Happy to be joined on the Peter King podcast today by Aaron Jones, running back with the Green Bay Packers, who's kind of exploded onto the NFL scene, leading the NFL in touchdowns at the season's midpoint um, and has really played well and been a valuable guy for Aaron Rodgers, both in the passing game and the running game. Uh, Aaron, first of all, welcome. And, and before we start, before I ask anything, I'm going to play a clip from the Sunday night telecast on NBC. And after that, I want to get your reaction to what you hear. Yes, sir. Luckily, you know, this guy over here was a tough matchup for them all night. And I didn't, I didn't do a whole lot besides 
get him the ball and let him do his thing. Well, you referenced Aaron Jones, who we're going to get to next. What kind of luxury is it having this guy with you? He's, he's a special guy. He's great in the locker room. He's a great young leader. He's a fantastic player. He does everything the right way. He doesn't have an ego, and he's a hell of a player. Glad he's on our team. So, Aaron, that's what, uh, that's what Aaron Rodgers said about you after the game on Sunday in Kansas City. First of all, what's your reaction to hear Aaron Rodgers talk about you like that? Just like, wow. I mean, it does a lot for your confidence uh, as a young guy. Um, that's a Hall of Fame quarterback. And he's saying this stuff about you as a player. It does a lot for your confidence, and it just makes you want to work that much harder um, to keep helping him out and keep being that that bright spot to go to and um, letting, having him depend on you. Have you been at all surprised at that particular part of your introduction to pro football that – Here's a great quarterback, one of the great quarterbacks when he retires, probably be a top 10 quarterback of all time. And he's relying on you and looking at you and talking about you like that. And what has that meant to you as a football player and as a person? Uh, I mean, it means everything. Like I said, it does a lot for your confidence as a player. You have a future Hall of Famer um, saying that about you. Um, he's seen a lot of football. He knows football, so he definitely knows what's going on, and he sees that in you and is saying this, these things about you. Like I said, it's just going to make you want to go back and start grinding right away and work harder uh, to continue to improve and continue to raise your game. Let's talk just a little bit about your role in this offense and how it has uh, how it has sort of uh, you know expanded in the time that there have been so many injuries now on this Green Bay team. I noticed in the game against Kansas City that you were lined up, I, I would call it as a wide receiver in this game, including on the 67-yard touchdown pass where you kind of came into motion, you stopped, and you took a pass from Aaron Rodgers. So how much have you practiced actually sort of wide receiver plays? Um, in the off season, uh, kind of work on route running and catching the ball a little bit, and I think that's something that all running backs do, not just me. Um, see it across the league and stuff. Uh, so way to improve your game. Um, so that that way, and then of course here in practice, uh, we we work on those those routes as well. Um, and in this offense, backs are asked to to be used in uh, different ways, and you got to be versatile. So I'm glad I can bring that aspect. Um, has anything about the pro game surprised you since you got there as a fifth-round pick out of Texas El Paso in 2017? Um, I would say you you hear how much of a business it is, but then um, you, you actually see it once you're here, um, and it's surreal. So I, I would say that probably. I want to ask you a few things about your your life and your past uh you've got a very interesting background in that you're a twin and you and your brother were grew up in a military family moved around a lot then settled in el paso i and correct me on anything that i'm wrong about here 
but settled in El Paso. And then when you were about eight years old, if I'm not mistaken, your mom and your dad, both who were career military officers, both were deployed to Iraq. And just tell me what that was like uh, for you and your brother staying back while they went out in service of the country. Yeah, um, it was definitely tough. Uh, my sister was as well with us. Um, we ended up moving from Tennessee at the time. We were living in Tennessee, um, and we moved to Virginia with my aunt and uncle, and um, they took care of us. But it, as a child, um, that, that, that's very hard. I mean, you used to seeing your parents every day, and um, then the next day you, you're not seeing them, and you're not knowing if they're going to come back. At the time, you're not understanding really what war is. You you hear like you hear a war when you're younger, and you just think of people being killed, you, and so you're not knowing when the, like if you're going to see them or anything. And so it's just tough on a, it's just tough on kids and. Um, but luckily, I have my brother and my sister, and uh, we have great family, and so um, they were able to just look after us and make sure we were good. And my parents came back safe, and thank I just thank God for that. So, how long were you without your mom and dad? For about like six months. Um, my uh-huh. my, I think it was my my dad had left first, um, went, going to Iraq, and then like three months later, my mom. I left. Yeah. I can't imagine when you're eight years old what that's like and whether, and, you know, having no idea, just watching your mother and father voluntarily go. I mean, do you remember what that day was like? Oh, man, I, I do. I, I can remember that day like the back of my hand. Um, I just remember uh, going there. So I got a big hanger and, um, you know, you know you 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 know you know what you're there for. You know your parents are about to leave, and you see other kids and everything, and you just see them start to line up and uh, get getting their units, and they start to exit out the building, and um, that's the last time you're gonna see them. Uh, praying that they come back alive, and um, but that it was a lot of tears that day, a lot of crying, uh, just. I know I'm a, I'm a mama's boy too, so my, I think my mom was the second one, second one to leave. So I know it was just tough. Can you look back on that and tell me how, if any way, either it affected you in your life? Did it made you make you grow up faster? What, what? When you look back on it now, what did it do for you in your life today? Um. It did so much for me. It just made me a stronger person overall, uh, faith-wise as well. My, my parents were, and my family were big into faith, and just always told me to continue to pray when times get hard, when you when you're not feeling it, or just any time um, you're down. Just not only when you're down, but all the time, continue to pray, continue to pray. And as a kid, uh, that's what me and my siblings would be. We also we would be doing. We would be praying that our parents make it back safe, and we like we. As a kid, we're just hoping we get to spend the next Christmas with them. And, you know, uh, a lot of holidays missed and things like that. What What do you think now when uh, you are back together as a family? Do you appreciate it? You think even more than a lot of people probably do because there was a time where you wondered whether your mom and dad would come back? Oh, definitely. Uh, 
never take a second with them for granted because uh, they're 29, 27 years in the Army. Um, any day could have been the day, um, not just in the Army, but any day could be it, – it could be anybody's day, any day, you know. So yeah. um, I just – my parents always just taught me never take anything for granted, um, treasure every moment. And so every moment I get, I get to spend with them, I treasure every moment because, I mean – like who knows? Like, I mean, I don't know what what has gone on over there, but who knows? One step to the right, one step to the left, things could have been different. So, I just continue to pray and thank God. Uh, with Aaron Jones, uh, breakout running back at the Green Bay Packers, Aaron, I wonder when did you first think? When did it first occur to you, man? I would really love to play in the NFL one day. <laughs> when I uh, first, well. Yeah, when I first started playing football, um, I told my dad, I was like, I was into football and basketball. I was like, I want to go to the NBA or NFL. Um, and that's been my goal ever since I was little to to become a professional athlete and not only become a professional athlete, but be the best at it. And uh, how much, how did you figure that that football was your game what what happened throughout high school to to make it more inclined to be for you to pursue football well basketball was actually my favorite sport um my height one um number two uh just more schools were showing interest in football so i was like hey uh, i think this football thing might might be the way to go definitely so um I did that, and I actually played my first year in college. Uh, me and my twin brother, we both played basketball our first year in college as well. Wow. Uh, did you have any big moments uh, on the basketball court at UTEP? Uh, yes, sir. I came in. Um, we played Old Dominion. Uh, that was really my first real game. Uh, playing, playing. Uh, we were in conference, and uh, one of the guards gives him foul trouble. I'll come in. Uh uh play I played good, uh scored, I uh, uh had some assist and a couple rebounds. Wow. So in college you were not really very much of a receiver. You caught seventy one balls in four seasons at Texas El Paso. Then you ended up getting drafted by the Packers and with the Packers you have really become much more of a receiver. What has that been like, and why do you think it's happened? Um, I just I think I've shown that I've uh, I've had good hands um, since I've been here. Um, so that's one of the things that they've seen in me, and just the offense, the uh, the coach Lafour runs. I feel like it just fits me very well. Uh, he likes to use backs everywhere, all over the field, and um, so the better you can catch, the more you'll play. Um, and, and the more opportunities you have. And and is is that part of your game that comes natural to you or have you had to work on your hands a lot? Uh no, it comes natural to me. Um I played receiver for a year and slot receiver for a year in high school, so um my sophomore year in high school, so um catching the ball it, I've definitely worked on it ever since I was little. Um, I would say probably I didn't get good at catching until probably high school. Um, probably eighth grade, start, uh, got, uh, started getting good at catching. But before that, I, I wouldn't say I was very good at catching. What's it like 
to catch an Aaron Rodgers pass versus other quarterbacks you've played for? What does the ball feel like coming into you? What is the what's the accuracy like? How how is it different to catch a ball from Aaron Rodgers? It's you right in between your numbers. Uh, sometimes, a lot of the times, the ball catches itself. You just got to put your hands out. Uh, that's the easiest the way for me to describe itself. it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, the ball catches itself. You just got to put your hands out. You put your hands out. You, nine times out of ten, the ball is going to fall right in your hands. So, two other things I was curious about when I sort of I've been watching some some of your highlights this year and and watching some of your games. I notice that you can line up almost anywhere. I, I don't know how many places you've lined up this year, but it's a lot. And I wonder, is it very complex? Is the offense of Matt LaFleur difficult for somebody like you who's asked to do so many things? Um, I would say at the be- if at the beginning, if this was presented to me, I'd have been like, whoa, like this is a lot. But we've had OTAs, we had a camp, so we've got to come in and learn the offense and get the offense down. Now, now I'm able to be be moved around because I know the offense and I can line up in different places and still know what's going on. And not only me, but you'll see that around the field you'll see other guys lined up like you'll see Danny Vitale our fullback lined up out wide and different places like that so um I just think it's part of that what's Matt LaFleur like to play for oh it's a lot of fun uh brings energy every day you know you're gonna have a lot of fun with him um meetings are fun um you're learning a lot about the game of football and um, he's going to make sure you're giving it your, your all your hundred percent. And um, when it's time to go, he's going to make sure you're ready. I'll end with this. I don't know whether you ever look at statistics numbers or, or where you stand, but what is it like for you right now? Where you came from fifth round pick, not at a power five conference, uh, and and who knows what kind of career you were going to have. But now this year, you've got better numbers than Ezekiel Elliott and, uh, and Todd Gurley and some of the really big names, big running backs in the NFL. Does it ever seem unreal to you? Uh, no, sir, not at all. Um, I've always believed in myself, and um, I competed with some of the same guys and college uh rushing wise and numbers wise and was up there in the same category statistically so um I feel like this is nothing new for me and I feel like it's something I'm capable of Aaron Jones it's really a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you a little bit thanks so much for spending some time thank you thank you for having me sir and now my conversation with Joe Posnanski the author of a new book on Harry Houdini. So happy to be joined on the podcast today by Joe Posnanski. He's written a book uh, that is just out called The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. Um, Joe, as many of you know, is one of the best uh, sports writers in America. He, uh, in 2012, was named uh, the National Sports Writer of the Year. 
uh, by the National Sports Media Association, and um, I have great, great regard for him uh, as a sports writer, and I just, I could not believe when I saw a few months ago <laughs> that you were writing a book about Harry Houdini, and we're going to get exactly to that, but we're sitting here in my home in Brooklyn, and we're, uh, we're basically going to dissect the life and times of Harry Houdini. Um, but Joe, I, I guess I'll start with saying you write in this book very early on, there have been more than 500 books written about Harry Houdini, yeah. which has to be more than any American figure ever. Maybe, I, maybe Lincoln. I, I would say, okay. Yeah. Maybe, Lincoln. maybe Lincoln. Yeah. But I can't, I just can't fathom anybody having that many books written about him. So why did you want to do the 501st? <laughs> it's, it is the right question. It's, by the way, worst, worst book pitch in history is to go to somebody and say, I want to write a book about Harry Houdini, <laughs> the 501st book. Um, I thought, I, I thought this was going to be something different. I thought I had a different way to look at it because I didn't start with Houdini. I started with this idea of wonder. You know, I mean, as sports writers, that's what we write so much about is like that that moment, you know, that, that sort of you see a run, you see a, a, a hit, you see a, a basket that just opens up your whole mind. And, you know, and I think magic does that, too. And, and, and here's a guy who died almost 100 years ago, and he's still the most famous magician in the world. And he's still somebody we talk about every day. There's every single day there's a story somewhere about Harry Houdini. And I wondered why. I, I mean, that was the story. And, and all of these books are about him. There, there's, there's comic books. There's fictional accounts. Uh, there's all sorts of things that use Houdini as a symbol. But none of them answered that question. Why does this guy still last? Why does he still survive? And so I thought... It is a book about Harry Houdini, but in a way, it's different from, from everything else. And so much of this book, I thought, was interesting because you delved into the lives of so many people whose lives have been unalterably changed and in many ways dictated by the life and times of Harry Houdini. Yeah, yeah, and, it's, and that was how I did it. You know, that was the... That was the, the the goal in my mind was like, I'm going to talk to all of these people. You know, they're people who run active websites about Harry Houdini, people who, whose entire lives, like you mentioned, were, were guided by Harry Houdini, whether it's when Harry Houdini ran away from home and so that inspired them to run away from home or, or when somebody who felt distant and, and, and completely out of uh, his community decided to become a magician because he saw Harry Houdini's photo and, and there's story after story after story like this. And I thought this is the way to get at, at something true, because as I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, very little is true about Harry <laughs> Houdini. Well, let, let's, let's go to that. I mean, I was struck in your book by the absolute by, by the incredible number of lies that he told in his life. In many ways, his life was a lie. He'd tell everybody, I was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. And he wasn't. Right. He was not born in Appleton, Wisconsin. He's born in Germany. You know, Budapest, yeah. Bud I mean, Hungary. Yeah, yeah. he's born in Hungary. And, and I, I kept thinking to myself, the job of a writer and the job of a reporter is to seek out the truth. And yet you have example after example after example 
you have him submitting stories to newspapers and them just running the stories yeah. and having no idea whether any of those stories that he submitted about this great trick that he just did yesterday in this city was, was true or not. He joked in your book, I've written uh, for more newspapers than anybody in America. <laughs> so I want to find out how did you get to the truth and ferret through so many lies? You know, in, in some way, the lies are the truth in, about Harry Houdini. Because what Harry Houdini represented was someone who wanted to create this myth, right? This legend that would last forever. That was what his whole life was about, was creating the Houdini that people would never, ever forget. And so he came up with these stories. He came up with these myths. And he did amazing things, too, that are in there somewhere. So, so there is truth in there somewhere, these escapes that he did. And, and yet there's also all of these extraordinary you know, lies that he created to do this. And all of it tells the story, right? All of it tells the story of this, of this you know, immigrant who grew up dirt poor, who, who ran away from home when he was 12, who, whose father was a, a rabbi who couldn't find work, who, who, you know, just everything that you would think is the opposite of what Harry Houdini is, and how he created this life and this, and this incredible story that we're still telling, you know, 100 years later. And so that was the truth that I was going after. I also was going to try to bust some myths. I mean, let's, let's be honest, because as you say, you're, you're always in. So, so the fact, you know, he would tell the story about being trapped under the ice during an escape for an hour, and he would, like, rise to the surface and breathe in that little distance between the water and the other. Like, that's, none of that's true. It's just completely untrue. Yeah. But it's such an interesting, provocative story that comes out of his imagination uh, that it tells something about him, too. So finding what's true and what's not true, and then also what's true in the myth is, uh, was, was so much fun. Joe, I'm going to ask you to read a passage of this book because I think it's important for those who might be listening to this who maybe don't have a fascination with this guy. Maybe they aren't of a certain age, and when, they're, when you're 23 years old, you have no idea who Harry Houdini is or why he's significant. We're going to read this, you're going to read this short passage, and then we're going to talk about why is he still significant to this day. Absolutely. Uh, we are closing in on 100 years since his death, and yet when a thief in Bangkok slips out of his handcuffs and eludes a dozen police officers, what do they call him? Houdini. A baby in Mundaring, Australia, continuously escapes a crib to the dismay and panic of her parents and the newspaper discoverer, Houdini Baby. A dog keeps sleeping, slipping out of the yard and creating havoc in a neighbor's garden in Melbourne, Florida, and is similarly called Houdini's dog. This is unoriginal. Newspapers in San Diego, Des Moines, Rome, Amsterdam, and North London also call particularly troublesome pooches Houdini. What sort of Houdini child do you have, asks Houdini Solutions Limited, a New Zealand company which makes baby safety devices. A harness Houdini? A bedroom Houdini? A put things in the toilet Houdini? We have the products that will keep that Houdini of yours contained and safer. FC Barcelona, the most famous soccer team on earth, overcomes a late deficit in the game. The headlines call them Houdini. Donald Trump gets tangled in a seemingly endless series of scandals and emerges unscathed. How does he do it? The reporters explain he is Houdini. In Missouri, a man's car flips over eight times after a fiery crash, and he walks away from the wreckage unharmed. 
I don't know, his wife tells reporters. He must be Houdini. An Alabama man on death row dodges execution seven times. Houdini. A baseball relief pitcher gets out of a bases-loaded jam in the World Series. Houdini. The Russian chess genius, Sergei Karjikan, escapes from a seemingly inescapable trap. Houdini. Houdini is always there, ready to be summoned. That's fantastic. That's on page four of your book. So when people are trying to say, why am I reading a book about Harry Houdini? <laughs> you basically have just told them. So why do we still care about Houdini? That, that is the question. And I think there are, there are a number of reasons for it. One is, I think, our fascination with escape. I think all of us feel it, you know, and that's why he's mentioned so often, is that the idea of being able to escape from something impossible, whatever it is in sports, in politics, and in anything, um, is so powerful. And this guy, because of the life he lived, because of the, the myths he created, he, 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 he's still at the very edge of what our imagination can imagine. I mean, to, to think that in the last hundred years there hasn't been someone more extraordinary at escaping than Houdini is, is really odd to think about, but yet that's where our mind goes. That's, a, you know, the, the first thing that our mind goes to when we think of escape is Houdini. I think the other there are other the reasons, but he was a master of self-promotion. Uh, I mean, a hundred years ahead of his time when it comes to uh, creating this mythology for himself, you know, through lies, but also through working the media and and coming up with ingenious. How ways. did he do that, Joe? How did he work the media? Oh my gosh, in many many ways. But you know, you as you mentioned. At the time, especially, uh, newspapers were the only media. There, there, this was before radio. This was before, certainly before television, anything else. And he would write stories, and newspapers would run them. I mean, they, they were always looking for interesting things. He was, he was, you know, he would wine and dine reporters to kind of give him better coverage. He would, uh, you know, got to know people. He was, he was very, very good about sending letters and notes to people. And you know, and as he became more famous. To get a note from Houdini was very meaningful, and you couldn't wait for him to come back to town next time so you could write an even bigger story on him. And he was just brilliant at at creating um, attention, and he would do things all the time. You know, the everybody knows about Houdini's up upside down straitjacket escape. You've everybody seen a photo right. of him doing it somewhere. He did that for free. Like that was not that was not part of the show. That was to get people to come to the show. So he would show up in, in Times Square or, or in Washington downtown or Chicago or Boston or Kansas City. I mean, he did it all over the country. And he would say, this is the first time this has ever been attempted. Someone is going to try to escape. He's going to be hanging upside down five stories off the ground and escape from a straitjacket. And thousands and thousands of people would come and watch. And then he would end and he'd be like, come to the show. And they would. So he was, he was a genius self-promoter. In many ways, I think the first, I mean, you know, people talk about P.T. Barnum, but Houdini took it to a whole other level. And you can see it today. I mean, Houdini's techniques for getting attention, going viral, um, are still being used today. This this guy was uh, ahead of his time. Joe, you write about a specific, several specific instances, one of which just seems so preposterous <laughs> that I had to ask you about it. That he got into uh, sort of sort of later in his career, probably midway through his career, he would go into police stations, yeah. take his clothes off. Yeah, that's right. 
and handcuff and leg cuff him and basically challenge the cops basically say i can get out of this in x amount of time and do it yeah so what possibly was the reason for that <laughs> why did he do this and i just i kept reading that and i'm saying what what is going on here yeah no it's it's incredibly bizarre everything he did if you take a step back from it it's like what what is this you know i mean like i you think about the water torture cell for instance which is his most famous escape right he hangs upside down underwater and he you know escapes from it but it's his contraption i mean everybody knows that it's not like it's not like oh we just happen to have one right here i mean he invented it and yet people were still fascinated though how can he get out of this thing that he built you know i mean if if, if anybody would know how to get out of it um so, you know, early on, people would say, oh, he has a key. He's, he's, he's hiding a key. And he goes, I am not hiding a key. And to prove it, I'll do it naked. And then suddenly he just saw that, hey, that works. People actually are interested in a naked guy escaping from things. And so he would go to, to different, all kinds of police stations all over the country. Every town he would want to do it, every town. And some places, there were there are a couple of great stories of, of him going to the station and then saying, okay, let's see you escape. And he would start to undress. And they're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like New York, he did that, right? Yeah. In a New York yeah. police they're station, like, right, they keep, said, keep him on, keep buddy. Keep him on, bub. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but it was all for attention. It was all, because those were free too. That's the other thing is though, all of those escapes, they, they weren't part of the show. They were just to get attention. The guy just lived to get attention. Joe, um, my favorite story about Houdini in the book, I mean, I, I have two. One is you lead the book with the Jess Willard story, the yes. boxer in Los Angeles. Very vivid story. I don't want to give everything away. But a story I'd really love you to tell is when he was in England and he was confronted by a reporter, an investigative reporter who was going to prove that Harry Houdini was a fraud. Yeah, and I would love you just to tell that story. Yeah, it's my it's one of my favorite things in the book. It's called uh, it's called the Mirror Cuffs. Is, is is the escape because it was a reporter from the Daily Mirror who, who found these cuffs. And I love so many things about it, but what I love most about it is we still don't know how he did it exactly. Everybody has theories, including me. In and the, you wrote about three of your theories in I, the book. I did. Yeah. I wrote about uh, but the most popular theories. Then I did some minor theories, and then I had to give my own theory how he did it. Um, but a guy from the Daily Mirror said that he had found uh, a locksmith in, in Birmingham who had built the impossible-to-escape handcuffs, right? They, they have these very long key, and you have to turn the key several different ways in order for it to open the lock. So you can't pick it. It's not a pickable lock. And he brought it and challenged Houdini, and Houdini at first didn't want anything to do with it. And then he said, You could tell that Houdini was nervous. He was very nervous. When he was, when he was confronted by this reporter. Yeah. In, a, in an auditorium, right? He in, did. In, that's in how, the Hippodrome or wherever. It, it, wasn't it was in the Hippodrome. That's what he did. He always would say, Okay, anybody have anything to challenge me? And he took the stage, the reporter, and said, I challenge you. And he said, No, no, those aren't regulation cuffs. And then he went off to another part of the stage, and the guy refused to leave the stage. And they, they eventually, Houdini had no choice. The crowd was cheering him, you know, and, and uh, the guy actually made a great, he, you have to give him a lot of credit. He said, oh, 
Mr. Houdini, you're an American, and, and I understand Americans have nothing to fear from the British, so, so do you want, want to represent your country, you know? And, and Houdini found himself trapped, and he said, okay, I accept the challenge. But he was nervous, and he, before he went out there, he said, I cannot, you know, and Houdini was a very, he was a braggart, and he was a bold guy. But he said before that, he goes, I can't promise you I'll get out of these, but I promise I will do my best. And it was an hour-long escape like that had many, many peaks and valleys that the people can read about the if, book. If you, if you, what was so interesting, I thought, about this, and, and I forget who today told you. You know, today, America has no... Uh, uh, America's too impatient sure, to we all sit are. through a performance Absolutely. like that. You want something different to happen every second. Right. And yet... Crowds were being asked when Harry Houdini performed, like this time in England, they were being asked to sit there while Harry Houdini would go into a tent right. or would go, you know, go behind a curtain or whatever to try to work to do everything to get out of these handcuffs or this straight jacket. Yeah. And so this was happening, and, and I recall from your story, three times he came out. Yes. And at one point, he asked the, the reporter would you please uh, unlock my handcuffs because I'm getting hot right. and I want to take my jacket off. Yes, yes. And the reporter refused to do it. He said, I, you've seen the cuffs locked, but you've never seen them unlocked. I won't do that. And the crowd booed. And then Houdini said, okay, enough. And he reached with his mouth into his front pocket and pulled out a pen knife and, and like somehow opened it and then like made a whole bunch of slashing motions and slashed the jacket right off of his back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the crowd went crazy. He was such a showman, you know, and the crowd went crazy. But you're right. The crowd is sitting there. Can you imagine now for 20 minutes staring at nothing? There's like literally <laughs> nothing while a band plays, you know? You're just like, but, but it was a different time. But there's no question of the time. I mean, the people were in the crowd crying. You know, they were so scared. They were so nervous and... And he came out, and everybody cheered, but he still had the handcuffs on. And then, and then he went back in, and he came out again, and everybody cheered, and he still had the handcuffs on. I mean, yeah, that's not playing today. We're not nobody. Nobody is is watching that whole thing today. But he would do it differently today. I mean, you, if if you believe as I do that a showman is a showman, you know, somebody who can who can perform. Um, they'll find what the audience wants, and that's what he was able to do. So, Joe, what happened in this particular? In this, in this particular story, which is my favorite story in the book. Yeah, well, at the end, he, he, he does escape the handcuffs, and the place goes crazy, and they carry him on his shoulders, and he talks about, you know, what a... And the, and the reporter graciously says, you know, Houdini has, has won, and, and everybody goes crazy, and, and nobody knows for sure how he did it, but everybody's pretty sure that he made the whole thing up. Like, the whole thing is is Houdini, uh, a Houdini setup. And, and, uh, uh, and So, in other well, words, well, do you believe to this day, is it your best guess? Because you can't know for right, sure. Right. This happened 115 years ago. That's right. So you can't know for sure, but is it your best guess that it was an inside job with him and the reporter? Yeah, that's what I believe. I, believe, <laughs> I, I have I have theories about how they did it, which is which is really fun. But um, 
Yeah, it's so Houdini. I mean, like this is like the, the thing that that you come to at the end is the Houdini was in some ways Houdini was more of an athlete than he was a magician. He had to win. Winning was everything that mattered to him. Win, win, win. You challenge me, nobody can keep Houdini prisoner. That was his slogan. So you he's not going into something he can't win. I, there's no way that Harry Houdini is not going to have some way of getting out. So um, and later there are many stories, I don't know how true they are, um, but when he would perform the uh, water torture cell or perform the milk uh, uh, escape, milk can escape, yeah. where he'd go underwater, same thing, that the escape literally took seconds to, to get out, but that he would be backstage reading a newspaper wait, you know, while the crowd is going crazy outside, waiting for the right moment to actually come out. So it feels a little bit like that. Joe, i got one more question to ask you you write in great detail about how he died yeah and to me it's a matter of great sadness quite honestly that he probably died by getting beat up by somebody who might or might not have been a college student right um and harry houdini late you know late in his life very late in his life now um, would challenge people in all ways, both physically, mentally, everything. And he was being interviewed in Montreal one one day when someone showed up. And I, can you just recount the story about what exactly happened to yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the guy um, shows up. He's doing an interview with, with other college students. He's older, and, and you know he doesn't really fit the scene. But Houdini seemed to have known him. And he says, isn't it true, Mr. Houdini, that you have challenged anyone to punch you in the stomach, that you can withstand any challenge? And Houdini kept saying, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk. You know, he kept like saying, oh, feel my muscles, feel how strong my muscles are. Like he would, he didn't want to talk about it. But the guy kept saying, I've heard that's true. I've heard that's true. And Houdini finally said, yes, it is true. I can withstand any punch. And he said, I'd like to punch you. I'd like to try this. And Houdini started to get up. And while he was getting up, uh, the guy punched him in the stomach as many as 10 times. Right. Like it over, wasn't just one it punch. It wasn't just one punch. It was, it was some guy who basically came in, it, it looked to me, trying to almost assassinate Harry Houdini. Well, it's crazy, you know, when you think about it. And the, the craziest part is, as you said, he challenged people to anything, but there is no evidence at all that he ever challenged anybody to punch him in the stomach. Like, this whole thing might have been... Yeah. But, you know, at that point, Houdini probably was like, yeah, I'm sure at some point I've challenged people. You know what I mean? Like, I've challenged people and everything else. Why not that? And what's most likely, I think, is that he was already suffering from appendicitis. So that's the most likely yeah. scenario. There are those who think the punches themselves caused it. But that's not as likely as that he was already suffering from it. He was, he was a, a very stubborn guy. He would not go to the doctor. And then after he got punched in the stomach... He was definitely not going to go to the doctor. He was not going to yeah. let anybody like, oh, some kid. Pit it was me in on the with the show. On with the show, and it was on with the show all the way to Detroit when he collapsed on the stage, tried again, collapsed again on the stage. Finally, got taken to the hospital, and they were able to remove his appendix and and would have saved his life if they'd done it earlier. But by that point, the poison had already seeped into his body, and he died five days later on Halloween. Wow, Halloween. 1926. 1926. Yeah. Um, Joe, my last question about this. Um, I, I, I'm very, very curious uh, 
as a writer and you were writing about a subject that is fascinating to you, but it's totally out of your bailiwick. Completely out. You know, you're a sports writer, and you go delve into this bizarre world uh, of magic. So what did, you, what did you learn about what you learn about yourself during this process? It's a, it's a great question because, yeah, there's no crossover between magic and sports. Like, being a sports writer... Uh, as, as you know, and you've done this fantastic, if, if you dropped a, uh, a story on me this minute, I would at least know who to call, right? I would know, okay, maybe this person knows this person. You know, there, you, you build up that, well, I don't know anybody in magic. Nobody, literally zero people. And to the point where I, the, uh, David Copperfield, who, who is a, a prominent part of this thing, I wrote to David Copperfield through the Contact Us page on, the, on, his, on, his, uh, on his website and, and, you know, which, which all the other options were like, I've lost my ticket or I can't make the show tonight, <laughs> you know. And I clicked other and then asked him if I could come. And so, yeah, I had no way of doing it. But here's what I found out about myself, and this is absolutely true. I loved it. I so loved being back on the, on the high wire, you know. I mean, there's not to say that what we do is, 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 is easy because it's not, but – after a while, you build up enough sources, you build up enough, you know, reputation maybe, and and you can usually sort of get your way in anywhere. Right. And here I was, I was a nobody, just a complete nobody, starting to try to do this story. And probably to... the vast majority of people who you talked to didn't know who you were. No idea who I was, and they, and I, and, and it's this kind of book where I needed them to trust me. I didn't just need to to talk to them. I needed them to trust me so they would tell me things and and. That was so much fun. I loved it so much. I did not know that. That comes through in the book, too. Honestly, the joy of the task. Yeah. It isn't like you write some... A lot of times, uh, you can tell the person is doing a workmanlike job. Um, But you can tell. You went to so many weird places. (laughs) It was great. To talk to people and to try to seek people out. And people whose lives have, have been changed and that I really had a lot of admiration for you about that because y- you had to go down so many rabbit holes with oh, this yeah. book, you know, Joe Posnancy will end with this. You are a, um, Clevelander <laughs> and, um, you had a tweet the other day about how you really want to trust the Browns. You really want to trust Freddie kitchens, but oh my God, <laughs> Can I do it as an objective human being? And I'm not, that's not what you tweeted, but it's basically that. So at this point, halfway through this season, that was supposed to be at least a borderline playoff season that has resulted in two wins by Halloween. Yeah. What do you think? I do not think very much of what's going on in, in Cleveland. I, you know, I... I think, and I, I, you know, I've seen you write some stuff like this. It was, I believe there was, the expectations did not match what was real. You know, I mean, I, there was somebody, I think, at Yahoo who wrote, uh, you know, he did like the 10, the, the 10 fans, the, the fan groups that are going to suffer the most, you know, this year. And they did the 10 of them. And it didn't have the Browns in there. Didn't it? it had to be the first time in 20 years that the Cleveland Browns weren't one of the 10 longest suffering fans or most suffering fans or whatever that thing was. And I actually like tweeted to him, like, what are you? 
are you kidding me? And he's like, no, the Browns, you know, the, the Browns are going to be good. I'm like, wow, that's, that's bold. You know, I mean, this, this team has, has proven to not know what it's doing for a very long time. And, you know, they have the pieces. I mean, there are, I mean, I don't know if they have all the pieces. I don't think that's the case, but you know, all kinds of playmakers and, 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 you know, but jump the gun on how good Baker Mayfield is, right? That, that was a huge uh, error. Uh, went with a, a head coach who certainly did some wonderful things last year as a coordinator for the first time in his career, but no coaching experience, no head coaching experience, no, no, and a very limited coordinator experience. So, you know, that happens. And, and then, of course, injuries are injuries, and they happen to everybody. And suddenly you look around and, like, this team is not very good, and I don't know that anybody has any idea. And they're playing incredibly sloppy football, right? right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the bad thing. I mean, you turnovers and penalties, I, I mean, that's, that's exactly what you don't do. And then you don't have a coach go around telling people, like, don't coach penalties. I mean, we, we, we know that. You, you clearly don't coach how to prevent them. I mean, that's, that's a big issue. So, you know, for me, this is so much fun because, as you know, I mean, I've been a, a sports writer for a very long time, and we work together at Sports Illustrated, and we've done, you know, a lot of things. I've written a lot of football. But now I have this opportunity to write what it's like to be a fan, right, of a, of a team that's not any good and, and hasn't been good for a long time. And it's really fun. And I realize that experience doesn't – not many people write about that. You know, I mean, you know, fans do. But, I mean, not many not many people write like a, like a weekly diary the way I do about the Browns. And, and it's fun to sort of, you know, even more than I would normally feel, live and die a little bit with it so that I can sort of write about what the experience is like and the experience right now is, I, I don't think these guys know what they're doing, and, and look out below. Here's one thing that I would that I would say. This to me, the first person who ever said this to me was Ken Anderson of the Cincinnati Sure. Games. And he said, you're never as good as you look when you're winning every week. Yeah. You're never as bad as you look when you're losing every Absolutely week. Absolutely right. And I think that is everything about the Cleveland Browns. The thing I told people at the beginning of the year, and the reason I did not pick them for the playoffs, is that talent-wise, their starting team, 1 through 22, was one of the best 12 uh, talent groups in football. Yes. So you say, well, you know, then that's a playoff team. But everything else about this team, this organization at this time, was, was unprepared. Not that they didn't try to prepare, but if the NFL gives you a schedule where in week two, you're on Monday night football, in week three, you're on Sunday night yes. football in Cleveland, in what you know, a good friend of mine who's from Cleveland said is the biggest game in Cleveland since we came back right? in 1999. No doubt. Okay. You go from the emotion of Monday night to a short week. You play it on Sunday night. There's Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. Yes. Then, two weeks later, you're on Monday night football again yes. in San Francisco against a surprisingly good team. Yes. And so this is, a, this is a franchise that for 20 years has been playing Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock with nobody watching. Right. And the sixth broadcast team for CBS doing the game. Yes. 
And now, what is it like every week when, first of all, uh, you got Nance and Tony Romo. Right. And then you've got the Monday Night Guys. And then you got Collinsworth and Michaels. And, then, and so time after time, every single time that you try to have just a normal existence, well, wait a second, there's... You know, somebody wants to come in and do a half hour. Mike Tirico wants to do a half hour with uh, Baker Mayfield. Yeah. And this guy wants this, and this guy wants that. And all of it, what I said at the beginning of the year is that the Browns have not arrived yet, but they're being treated like a team that has arrived. Yes. And I think a lot of teams probably would be fairly good at handling that, except no one on that team, with the exception, I would say, of Demetrius Harris, the backup tight end, and Morgan Burnett, the safety. They've played deep game, games into deep January. Into right. January. Right. No one else of the 53 guys on that team ever has. Yeah. The head coach has never coached yeah. deep into January. <laughs> right. He's never, he's never been a head coach. Right. So I look at all these things, and I just said, it's a perfect storm designed for them to be 7-9 and nine or 8-8, eight and eight, which... I know everybody is going to say, oh, my God, that's not progress. Yes, it is progress. Yeah. You know, if you get used to, if you get calloused by the, uh, by the bigness, you'll be okay next year. It's just, in my opinion, and I said this to a good friend of mine from Cleveland, the only thing I would say, just don't overreact. Yeah. Just don't. Because you're going to wake up, you know, at the end of this season, be depressed, but say, I'd still rather have this team than the Derek Anderson or Brady Quinn team. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I would agree with every bit of that, including to the point where I think if they can get to 8-8, eight and 7-9, eight, and nine, if they can play a second half of the season where they go 5-2 and two or 4-3, and yeah, three, yeah I, think that, I think it's a real progress. I, you know, they have had a tough schedule. Your point is 100% right. Not only to have a first-year head coach, but have a first-year head coach with this kind of uh, you know expectation put on them, these kinds of circumstances put on them, they've not lived up to that. They've not handled it, and you can see that a lot of it is is you know overreaction. A lot of it is you know trying to do too much. So I, I don't think that's the issue. I think the bigger issue to me has been the lack of improvement as this season has gone yeah. on. Because you go through it the one time, two times, three times. You, you, you have a bye week, and, and then you lay an egg like that in New England where, you know, you match up and can't come close because you're so outcoached and out. I think what will be interesting to see, Joe, in the second half of the season where you get the Bengals twice. Yeah. <coughs> Steelers twice. Yeah, where you've, yeah. Got, where you've got a lot of teams that you've got a chance to win these games right. every week. Right. And that's why I think if they end up worse than 8-8 eight and eight, um, – or, 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 or let's say worse than seven and nine, which I don't think they will. If they end up worse than that, then it's time to worry. But I don't. I you could I could just see this coming. I'm not saying that I could totally see two and five coming, but I could see a lot of this coming. And I think my only advice to people who love the Browns is just don't overreact. I think that's right. I think that's 100 percent right. I, I think there, there are two big questions, and and we'll find out when they are because they're playing at Denver this week when they're playing teams that they definitely match up with week after week, one is, is Freddie kitchens advancing as a coach because as of right now he's, he looks overmatched all the time. And two, honestly is who is Baker Mayfield? I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it is, it is really 
uh, a disjointed experience to watch Baker Mayfield struggle on the field and then watch 10 commercials with Baker Mayfield in them. And yeah, you know, <laughs> he's very good at those, by <laughs> the way. He's fun. He's so much fun, <laughs> and he's great. Um, but what, what, you know, what is going to happen on the field with Baker Mayfield? And, and I think it is, he has been put in an unfair position, as have, they all have, because it's the NFL, and this is what it's about. They've played an incredibly tough schedule under a huge mic, uh, microscope that they did not necessarily put there. You know, they, they weren't running around, for the most part, telling people they were going to the Super Bowl. It's everybody else that was saying that about them. So they were put in this situation. They had to live up to it. They've not lived up to it. But now we're going to find out what this team is really about. Joe Posnanski, the life and afterlife of Harry Houdini um, from Avid Reader Press. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of yours, and I'm a huge fan of this book. Thank you. I very, very strongly recommend it. Uh, and by the way, it's coming up to holiday shopping season. <laughs> this is going to look so beautiful under the tree for one specific reason. The cover's all red. It is. It's, it's very nice. Cover, it's right? very nice. But anyway, Joe, thanks a lot for coming over and joining me. Thank you. My thanks to John Harbaugh, Aaron Jones, and Joe Posnanski. Now that was a wide variety of podcasting right there. But anyway, I really love the Houdini book. I strongly recommend it. I know we're, I don't mean to just shill for Joe Posnanski, but I mean, if you like a good story, you're going to love this book on Houdini. I, I really recommend it. And that's it for this week. Looking forward to coming back next week with a podcast after week 10 of the NFL season. And by the way, if you don't already, please, I spend 20 or 30 minutes Every Monday when I am falling down tired at about 4.15 a.m., wherever I am. This past week I was in Baltimore. Most often I'm at, in my home in Brooklyn trying not to wake everybody up. Uh, but please listen to my FMIA mini pod every Monday to get the latest. First of all, previewing my column and talking about that week's action in the National Football League. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>